Welcome to the Practical Mystic Show, where we bring you simple tips and techniques from around the globe to help practical people deal with extraordinary experiences. And now, your favorite scientist, shaman, and sacred clown, and also the show's host, Janine Bolin. Hi, welcome to the show. This is Janine Bolin, and with all the shows, when I am able to have a guest on, I get incredibly excited because of the amazing wisdom and knowledge base and just skill sets that different people, different guests have to have for this show. One of the things I want to share with you about today's guest, who is Josephine Mariposa, not only is she an author, but she is a differently abled activist. She has a life after trauma kind of coach. And she's a mother of four. Her life basically changed forever after a traumatic spine injury. And she has a wonderfully inspirational book called Anything is Possible. It debuted and it's been on the top 100 bestseller list on Amazon on several of their lists. So the real quick sum up of this book and soon we will get to our guest is after she spent two years in hospital with no diagnosis, mind you, they finally went through countless invasive test, Josephine was finally diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder and has since rebuilt and transformed her entire life. She does it with her own unique sense of humor, which I can attest to. I absolutely love her humor. She has managed to help her condition she took it on head on, basically, just went right head on, and she makes sure that she is managing her life. She does not allow her condition to manage her. Despite her diagnosis, Josephine has always been determined to live an authentic and fulfilled life at home, at her home, deep in the English countryside with her family. She has written the book, Anything is Possible, to share not only her story, but really the techniques that she uses to help people cope and experience uh, the trauma that they had so that they can be inspired to move on and make real life change as opposed to living according to someone else's roadmap. Thank you for being with us today, Josephine. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, so quite the journey that you had. I only know a little bit of it, even though I've known you for several years now, but it's one of those things that when people are experiencing and going through various types of trauma, it is a total journey in and of itself. So let's just start with the basics because you have so much to offer people with the systems and the techniques that you've brought on board. And that is, you know, why did you write the book? Let's start with the basics. I was in hospital for two years and um, a lot of people who had a diagnosis got support, they got a dedicated nurse or, you know, counselling. And there was nothing for me because I had an undiagnosed condition. And um, I had the idea to write a book, but I really wasn't well enough to do it when I came out of hospital. And um, it went from there. I had a friend who had the same condition as me in America. And I got a phone call from her sister to say that, unfortunately, she had died due to the pandemic. And then the the sister said to me, have you written your book yet? And I went, no, I don't know where to start. (laughs) Nothing like having somebody's sister contact you and go, oh, and by the way, do you remember? A lot of writers talk to us about that, that they get these bonks on the head. So, yes, please 
That was, and there were a lot of coincidences in my life. And I decided, okay, this must be a nudge. And I told her, I don't know. I know what I want to say, but I don't know where to begin. And she said, well, I could help you with that. I'm a published author. And I thought, well, I've got to do it now. <laughs> and COVID, uh, putting us inside for months on end, was the ideal writer's retreat. So that's how it all started. And that's the thing is you were in the English countryside and I know a lot of listeners are all over the world and it depends on what country you're in. But I remember the English, they were on lockdown uh, right so quickly for the pandemic and it lasted a very long time relative to what other countries had going on. So it's I just remember, yeah, you're still there, right? You're still living that. Yeah. Yeah. Nearly a year after the initial date. Um, but, you know, being in the English countryside is a nice place to be, even in a pandemic. I, I found that from a lot of people. They're like, yeah, but I really wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So, you know, yes, it's inconvenient, and, but I, I'm, I'm here. And as you stated in your book, I'm with my family. I'm living in my home and I'm living life my way. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, because you were undiagnosed for so long, and then when you were diagnosed, the medical community had a blueprint that they felt you should follow, and you were like, oh, I don't think so. So do you mind sharing a little bit about what the medical community said was in your best interest, and then how you had to make a life for yourself? Yes, well, in my best interest was uh, they thought that as I need a lot of care, um, to put it in context, so I went so low as to sleep 22 hours a day, and so nearly not here. And then even with, with the diagnosis, I had to stay in hospital for a long time because I'd been in bed for such a long time. And eventually I made a bit of progress and they said, the best thing for you to do is maybe to go to a nursing home. And I said, uh -uh, no, that's not my vision. I want to go home. I haven't spent, you know, all this time in hospital to be in, an, in a nursing home. No, I want to be with my children and I want to do things. I'm an independent woman, very much independent <laughs> Um, and so that took a lot of negotiating and I had to pass certain tests. And so I spent a lot of time building in exercises to get to do that, pass the tests. And eventually I did. And my husband eventually found a small cottage in the village we live in that is set up for disabled uh, living uh, with a bit of alterations, but that was better than a nursing home. And the house is not very big. It's a very small house, but I only live on the ground floor as I did not want to live in a bungalow with my children. I wanted them to still feel it was a home. So I remember when you and I were talking uh, through the pandemic, how you you would be like, yes, I'm here on my level of the house. And because your family had to move about and you had um, 
a grocer and a shop that you had to keep going for the village because the village relied on you, that you had uh, to make sure that you were separated. And lucky for you, you had already kind of separated that out because of your um, way that you needed to be. But do you mind describing a little bit about how your life had to look there for a while? Well, um, I'm, I'm in a partnership and I'm the not so silent partner. That means I don't physically go to the shop, um, but I do have a lot of input there. Um, and I'm more computer literate than my partner. So therefore, uh, I do those tasks and he's a salesman. So, <laughs> and I, I'm not really, that's not really my strength. But I, I can do the accounts and so on, but if I want to, and if I'm able to, nothing is urgent. Right. And I, I just remember how, you know, you hadn't seen your family or you were looking through windows and stuff like that was how your family was having to coordinate things with you. Or they, they may be upstairs, but you were on Zoom with them or downstairs and that sort of thing, just because that was how you were having to operate when nobody knew what was going to happen with the virus. And then as we got more information, you were your family was able to relax a little bit more. But yeah, still having to be quite cautious from what you were telling me. Yes, yes. Lots of hand washing and face masks and, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's where we are. That's where we are. <laughs> so you were able to write your book because of all of this happening. So tell us a little bit about what were your intentions for the book? Like, what were you really wanting to help your readers uh, with in the book? Well, I imagine someone in hospital waiting for a long time in an undiagnosed capacity and um, I kept that person in mind because I because I didn't have any support and I looked online and couldn't find any I thought I wanted to write a book to that person to show that well anything is possible <laughs> you but you have um, you know if you find out who you are and what you want to do you can rebuild your life and so I meditated and did yoga nidra and did a whole lot of other things. And I used a vision board to visualize what I wanted my life to be like. And then all I had to do was to gradually, step by step, get there. So you set yourself up a vision and then you set up certain, uh, some people would say targets or goals or what have you, however you want to uh, define those. And then you just move toward them. And it, everybody, when you give them that kind of advice, they always go, well, that's so simple. That's not so difficult. But yet there's still a bunch of decisions that have to be made every day. Do you mind chatting a little bit about some of the decision making that you had to make and some of the emotional barriers that you wound up with that you had to kind of work through? Yes. Um, I mean, when I was in hospital and I was so ill, I wanted my family to be provided for. And um, I had to make the difficult decision as to what would happen to them if I wasn't there. So part of that vision was, well, uh, I have to make sure that they can make decisions about my health if I can no longer make those decisions. Um, so that meant having a power of health somebody else to make that decision for me and that had to be set up by a solicitor and all these things took time um and uh they 
difficult things to look at, but I can honestly say that once I'd gone through the process of setting them up, there was definitely some uh, relief as if it didn't matter what would happen. I had, it had all been thought out and set up. Uh, and the main thing was I uh, had to face a neck surgery with um, three choices, really. I could either die during the surgery, that was one, I, um, or I could be permanently disabled or mentally disabled. You know, I could have gone gaga overnight. And that had that had a great impact on the family, really. And we've always done things together. So the decisions were made together. And so you weren't able to get support from the medical community or from support services. Thank heavens you had a family that was rallying around you to help you with these very difficult decisions. So, so you have somebody, uh, the reader that you were focused on was the person laying in a hospital bed, wondering what to do next or how to set things up. When you were visualizing your life, what were the primary factors you were most uh, concerned, or maybe that's the wrong word, you were most focused on, like you wanted to make happen. The first one was you wanted your family to be able to make decisions and that sort of thing. Were there a couple of other things that you were adamant about? Well, secondly, I enjoy being a mum. So I wanted to be a mum to my children. They're grown up, but they still need a mum sometimes. And um we made that they made that possible by getting me a, a smartphone to be able to communicate with them and they didn't have to come and see me but i could communicate with them and um i wanted to be a mother i wanted to support people and um do the best i could with what's left of my body um and that it took a lot of thinking time, but then if you're in bed 24 hours a day, you've got plenty of time to think. Um, and I decided not to focus too much on the things that I couldn't do, but to see what I could do. I gave up housework. That was definitely one I was not going to do. Um, and anything else, yes, I have a hobby. I knit a lot and um, I had different fiber hobbies, but I knew I couldn't do all of them. So I had to choose. Um, I like reading, but I couldn't read. So that went to audiobooks. And I looked just for other options to get the same outcome. And that, I think, is where your coaching is so helpful. It's like, okay, these are your options. Not all of them are fabulous, but these are your options. Now, how can we get you to the result that you want? And you can lead people through that process of how to set up, uh, thank heavens for technology, right? We, we, yeah. we love it. We have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with technology, but it does allow people like yourself and, and thousands of others who were often put in institutionalized care because the tech wasn't there. Well, now we have the ability to have people be very independent for a long period of time. So what are some aspects in your own life where technology made it ever so e easy? You mentioned the smartphone. Of course, that's always helpful yeah. for communication, but you also mentioned audiobooks. Are there a few others that maybe a person like myself uh, wouldn't know about because I haven't had to seek them out? Oh, I've, I've, um, 
Well, the first book that I got was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which, which really cemented the fact that I should not concentrate, not spend time thinking about what happened or not spend time about thinking how life was going to be, but to concentrate on the now. And I have little energy, but if I concentrate on the now, I, I can do anything, but not everything. Um, so that was a good book. And there are, there are so many. <laughs> well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one, though, because one of the things that I learned from that book was the power of now, just literally how you remove or there a lot of resistance dissolves. It almost drips off of you because you're so focused in your present moment. And I've heard so many uh, athletes and people who have come back from incredible difficulties, they all talk about that singular moment when they made the decision to not focus on the past, not look to the future, but they just stay ever present. And there's a lot of lip service given to that. And yet people don't really know how to practice that. So you've had to do that for years. Do you mind giving us a few tips on, look, okay, yeah, you're right, yeah, but I really don't know how to do this. So how does Josephine stay in that present moment? Right. To begin with, I commit everything to an app called OmniFocus that I just commit every thought to it so I don't have to keep it in my head so um, if I say I want to do 10 minutes exercise, let's say next Wednesday, I just put it in there, forget about it. And then I'm back in the moment. The thought's gone. Um, and so every day I know what I have to do today and I can choose what I don't. To be in the moment also has the facility that you not constantly get traumatized by what's happened and you don't fear what happens in the future. Um, okay, it's, I don't know, I just live it now, but it was difficult to begin with. Um, with meditation, I got there, but um, it took a long time because you have all the thoughts zooming in your head and you must do this and the phone rings. And But for me, I just do one activity at a time because it gives you a sense of achievement. And so this whole concept that they have been trying to teach in the corporate world about we need somebody who can multitask, you basically have to give up all that training and all of that thought process and give up on multitasking and really focus on singularity. So do you mind talking a little bit about um, how you had to give up uh, multitasking and and how you sit in your life now. I'm, because I know there's a lot of people, they hear this stuff all the time, but you're somebody who's like, no, I, I walk that path and it took time. So what were, some of the, <laughs> what were some of the things where you're like, wow, I'm doing a little better today with this? Can you, can you share? Um, you, uh, you always, as a mum of four children, you have an awful lot of plates spinning. And um, being in the moment means that you just choose one plate. You let the other spin, fall down or whatever. You, you only concentrate on one thing. And um, that becomes easier with time. Uh, and also a big thing is 
my phrase is you can do anything, but you don't have to do everything, which means that if people ask you something, you don't necessarily have to say yes. You have to be specific and say, okay, I could do that, but it's going to take me three weeks. If you can wait that long, great. If you can't, go and find somebody else, <laughs> please. And that is a that is a challenge, especially for women. We want to make people's lives easier. We want to help be that nurturer, help mentor people. But sometimes you just have to go, I know I could do this. The question is, should I? And I like the way you definitely phrased it with, okay, uh, but it will take me three weeks. <laughs> I love that. It's like, that's my timeline. I'm sticking to it. So, you know. Make your decision, and it's out of your hands. Then it's you're not having to decide. So, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with the listeners today? Um, I think, I think what happened during that period of time was that I found out what my why is, my authentic person, and making decisions from that place is a lot easier them walking around and wearing a, a, a different mask <laughs> to say that who, who you think you are is not necessarily who you are deep down. And for me, it was a process to, um, you know, what happened changed me and made me more authentic. And that's a good thing that came out of it. Well, and I'm, I'm going to press you a little bit on that one. We hear a lot about the word authentic and it's spoken by a lot of people. Now you are that. So I would like your personal definition of what does this mean to be authentic? You know, uh, people need some guidance on what does that mean? So can you break it down a little bit for us? Okay. Yes. I've explained to my children that um, when you grow up society, well, you are somebody as a child and you have your interests and um, you hate certain things. And then when you grow up, all of a sudden, um, society expects you to fit in somewhere, whether it's your parents or, oh, you should do that job that will earn much money. Um but you might not like that job, but you feel you have to do it. And then you have to get married by a certain time and have children and buy your house. And those are all things that may not be you. You might be an artist um, deep down and you forget who you are. The authentic artist then has to, you know, like a diamond or an onion, you've, an onion, you've got to peel the layers off to get to the core. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. Um, I've always said to my children that uh, if you go and find a job, find one that you enjoy so that you don't end up earning money just to pay off your sofa. I want you to find a job that you're happy to go to every day and you can just be yourself. Because there are days that are going to be tough and the days where you can just be yourself will make it easier. Yes, I agree. I I have given 
that same advice to my children. And that was one of the things that connected Josephine and I when we both started talking about how important it was for us to be mothers our way. We both had to take very different and we were actually deviants uh, from our family, our uh, extended family, because we chose, we, we made choice after choice over a period of time so that we could be the type of mothers we wanted to be to our four children. And that really set us up to being some people call uh, Josephine a leader, and in in when I get that call, the leader, I'm like, no, I was just doing things that would work for me for my life. I won't speak for Josephine, but when people look at you and go, oh, but I can't do that, you know, you're Josephine, you you've done all these things. What is your response to that? Well, <laughs> she um... laughs. She starts laughing. If you can't hear her, she's just cracking up here. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I think I would call myself a rebel. I've never taken, I've never taken when somebody says something, oh, well, this is what you have to do. My question has always been, why? <laughs> and if people give me an explanation, then I can work with it. But they usually, when you were younger, say, well, because it's expected, it's the rule, it's whatever. And, um, I've always asked questions. I, that's made me unpopular sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> but, you know, three-year-olds constantly ask why, what's wrong with it? Um, so just ask questions as you go through life and make your decisions that you, you know, that you can or compromise. And for those of you who are struggling or working through or are living in a condition that you are uh, visualizing yourself moving out of, whatever, however you want to frame that for yourself, when you are dealing with the medical community, ask a bunch of, a bunch of questions, train your medical teams that you are somebody who will be more than happy to be a compliant patient if they can justify for you why you need to walk a certain path. So I have so beautifully trained my medical teams, and Josephine and I have talked about this, where we have so trained our doctors and our healthcare providers that that they don't even give us a chance to ask why anymore. They just look at us and they just start saying, and the reason we think this is best for you is, and literally I have had doctors take 15 minutes with me, which is saying something in the American healthcare system, to have a doctor take 15 minutes explaining why they're doing what they're doing and why all these other options are unavailable for my healthcare in that moment. And I always look at them and go, that was very rationally explained. Thank you. I will be happy to be a compliant patient now. And they like, I love having uh, having these discussions with you, Janine. You really make me work my <laughs> work my magic with you. <laughs> so I'm sure you've had the same thing, Josephine. Well, um, turning up and when the doctor asks you, so what is the matter? If you say, I don't feel well, that's too broad, you know, that leaves the decision to the doctor to decide and figure out what's wrong with you. Um, I ended up, um, I'm data focused. So I would write things down, like if I do this, that happens. And I have headaches in the morning and I've changed this and I've changed that. And I said, I don't know what's happening. Do you? <laughs> and then they, you know, they have the authority to find it. 
And the medical team is part of a team. That means they're supporting you, but you are the most important person and you know your own body and you can put that point of view across. Very well said. Very articulate. So it's like you've had to deal with them once or twice in your life. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I've been, I've been very cheeky um, when I was really, really ill and the neurologist couldn't find what was the matter with me. I said, well, can I have some medicine? And he said, no, not until I know what's the matter with you. And I said, well, hurry up, because if you don't find it soon, the pathologist will. <laughs> <laughs> and there, ladies and gentlemen, is that beautiful sense of humor that we have come to know Josephine for. Thank you so much for your time today. And I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode. Please stay tuned for more guests that will be coming on in later weeks. Have a great day. This has been the Practical Mystic Show with Janine Bolin. For show notes, resources, and more, visit the eightgates.com. Thanks for listening.